Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And we're currently look, working on the stories of 1954 in rough order of publication. In this episode, we'll be looking at Small Town. Um, Small Town is a fantasy story. Maybe, yeah, mostly fantasy. I wouldn't call it science fiction. But it's a, it's a really great story on the issue of urban planning, on family. So we have another window into kind of broken uh, middle class family. So let's get right into it. Uh, it was published in May 1954 in Amazing. So th this was a big sale for, for Philip Dick. Um, it's, it's a worthy tale to have been put in, in that prestigious journal or magazine. You can read it in the second volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick, The We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, um, Volume 2. So, um, into the plot summary. Uh, what happens in this story? Well, our, our hero is Vern Haskell. And he is a tired, devastated worker who comes home. You know, beaten, defeated, destroyed by what he's faced in his workplace. He talks to about his wife about about moving to another job. He doesn't seem to like his work at all. He shows indifference to dinner, but he doesn't want to eat out. And when he complains about dinner, the wife says, well, maybe we should move. And he says, or maybe we should eat out. And he says, no, I'm not. I don't want to eat out. I don't want to see people. I'm sick of people. He goes then into his basement to play with his train set. Now he wants to move out of Woodland. But he takes an, a kind of a used, or takes a model train set, and he uses it to create a precise replica of this town he hates. He has been working on it ever since he was a child. He creates copies of every store, every house, every detail, even down to the messages on the signs. It's an incredibly detailed scale model of, of the town he lives in, this town of Woodland. And he watches the train go around the track. Ever since he was young, he loved this train set. He added to it day by day, year by year, until he had built his very own copy of the town. And it's almost complete now. He takes special notice of, of some signs, Larson's Pump, I guess a gas station, or Larson's Pump and Valve Works, a gas station repair shop. That's where he worked for 20 years. For those 20 years, he built up resentment over the promotion of younger workers, and his need to answer to his boss every day, and his need to answer to the various yes-men who moved up the hierarchy of the, of the small business. He dwells on this. He's frustrated by this. He hates this workplace, yet he worked for it for 20 years. And it's a small, meaningless job in a small, meaningless town, but that's his life. In fact, he says, or he, it's internal monologue, but he, he goes on how he hates every aspect of the town. He even resents his wife. It was an upper middle class town that always seemed to get the better of him. So yeah, it's a middle class suburban community, like so many of Dick's stories seem to be placed in those kinds of communities, but it's a 
it's a middle class town which he was always like one step out of sync with one you know always out of touch never really get on that track for upward mobility he's kind of always stuck at the lower end of this middle class spectrum in a fit of anger he takes the model of larson's pump in valve works his workplace and smashes it and he constructs a model very quickly of another building and he calls it woodland mortuary and he puts this new workplace in his model so that's the setup for the story now meanwhile so all this is happening everything that well he's downstairs from he's down in the basement working on this train set for most of this time meanwhile his wife is upstairs right so we already got this image not only of a of this broken man but we also got this totally broken family that doesn't spend really time together he just eats dinner complains about it and then goes downstairs and it seems he spends most of his time there in this way we're reminded of the story the builder and now this character doesn't seem to be suffering from ptsd like the story the character in the builder but in the builder you have the same kind of dynamic where it's a really dysfunctional family and the man finds outlets elsewhere so madge haskell is discussing this is Vern's wife this is the the wife he's discussing Vern's slow decline to the friend and doctor paul tyler and I guess he's at back at work or something because she takes Paul Tyler down to the basement and shows him the train set where he spent so much of his time. And Paul is amazed, as any of us would be if we were to see this, right? It shows great skill. It shows great diligence and hard work. Yeah, it's, it's not something that's valued by a capitalist economy, is it? You know, we never value this type of labor, really. Um, you know, what's... We, we scold people for maybe spending too much time on their hobbies, right? It's, it's, you've got to wait till you retire to do that, right? Don't, don't do that. You should be working on your job, working on your career, make money, right? So you're going to have a nice retirement. Forgetting that many of us don't even make it to retirement because um, vagrancies of life hit us. But nevertheless, Paul's quite impressed by this, right? He's a, he's a great model builder. He's not making kits. He's making this stuff from scratch with his tools and, and the materials he collects. Paul suggests... Um, that the attraction of the train set to a man like Vern is the power it gives him, a power he lacks in real life. And this is the important kind of thematic core of the story, is that the train set and this model of the city gives Vern power. Now, taking a closer look, Paul notices numerous alterations of the town. So this is sometimes later, and Vern's been making small changes to the town. They're not, it's not quite right. Right, signs are a little bit different. Some buildings are different. Now, at this point, Madge makes it clear that her intention towards Paul was sexual, and that's why she invited him over. The same morning, Vern quits his job at Larson's Pump and Valve Works, and he feels liberated for the first time ever. He feels liberated from a job full of boredom and routine. 20 years, 20 brutal years of humiliation and boredom. He comes home early and surprises Madge and Paul, who just finished their sexual encounter. So he walks in on his wife with her new lover. But Vern is, ob is oblivious. He just tells Madge that he quit his job and he goes down to work on the model town again. And so everyone's kind of shocked that uh, you imagine, I don't, I don't think it's written, but you can imagine just how shocked Madge and Paul are that, you know, you expected the big fight and the marriage being destroyed but Vern just goes downstairs he doesn't care 
He begins working furiously, altering the town. Madge and Paul confront him about this, but he ignores their pleas for an explanation. Vern says he's too busy to continue working at Larson's, and that's why he can't keep his job. He's got bigger fish to fry. And he works long into the night on his transformation of the town. Vern is close to completing his job, and he creates a much less upper-middle-class town. It's got fewer mansions, fewer wealthy neighborhoods. He rebuilds the city hall to resemble the Parthenon, because why not? You know, We should probably think about doing that for, with our town halls and also make them open to a more to democratic debate more than they are make them centers of civic life like the Parthenon was okay he carried out some grudges as well he gave the homes of people who had wronged him dilapidated standing so he just like the homes of people he didn't like he he made horrible the odious factory sectors replaced with parks and pastures so he just makes it, he take, gets rid of the industry altogether. Jim Larson, his former boss, is gone entirely. And at the end, he's created his ideal community. Perfect, moral, ideal for children, egalitarian, a classless society. He even made himself mayor. He writes his name in minute letters on the office door in the city hall. He makes himself mayor. And in fact, he is the mayor because he created this town from essentially scratch. Now, when Vern declares his victory in changing the town, Paul and Madge go downstairs and find, and find both Vern and the model set missing. Paul and Madge are convinced that he has either fallen entirely into his fantasy world, or he's probably finally, finally fallen into his fantasy world. This will free the two of them, they believe, to continue their love affair, and Vern will be happier for it. He didn't seem to be too happy in the marriage anyways, and he can kind of live out his life you know, in a delusional state. Madge does not fully understand, but Paul tries to tell her that Vern is entirely in a substitute world. They will need to go to the police station to report him missing. And Paul explains to Madge that he realized that the mind constructs reality for itself. So Paul kind of is our narrator in a way, our, our kind of thematic narrator, kind of telling us what, how to make the conclusion. And he, he says, it's the mind that makes reality. And on their way to the police station, they notice that the town has changed to match Vern's model. And the car stops in front of this Hellenized city hall, the Parthenon, and four police officers approach them. And we can only imagine what Mayor Vern Haskell will have happen to um, his wife. And, and that's the story. So our analysis of this. Vern Haskell, the protagonist in Small Town, is both utterly horrifying and very sympathetic. He is sympathetic because he's a recognizable underling. He works hard, but he's abused and bored and, and humiliated in his workplace. And for not just for a few years, for most of his life, for 20 years. He suffers various abuses and insults at the hands of his superiors and other workers. He seems to be skilled. He can make this thing, but his talents are misapplied to his work. Right, All his talents are being directed to you know, other, other tasks. He's just better, you know, he probably could be a craftsman, right? Or make models, but he doesn't. He, he's misapplied. He's working at a gas station. He, in fact, is so inoffensive. He doesn't rebel or anything. And he can't, eat, you know, at the beginning, he's so uncreative that despite not wanting to live in the town, he, he creates a model of this town he hates, being true to every detail of the town. So there's no creativity at this point in his life. 
The story shows Verne rising to boldness and creativity. In a revolutionary moment, he realized that he does not have to accept the rules of his community. You know, as the creator of this small town, this train set, he can follow whatever rules he wants. So he begins to recreate the model into the perfect town for him, making himself mayor of this little police state. And while what he wants to create is sometimes a bit odd, what we find praiseworthy in his sudden transformation of boldness, he's, he's you know, is that he has real grievances against many of the people in his life. And his revenge is satisfying for the reader. We're kind of happy he finally gets this autonomy and is able to stick it to the people who have wronged him throughout the life. Um, but let's come right to it. Verne is engaged in utopianism. He is building a utopia. Now, for this has been done for centuries, from the time of Thomas More. People writing down what they think the ideal society should be. And it's, it's actually, I think, us at our most creative when we can do this. We don't just imagine a new technology or a funny little story or a monster, like in a horror story. We imagine an entire world and we, we design a world that could be. I think sometimes people say that this is utopian to say, oh, we won't take it seriously, right? But the good utopias are feasible, right? They, they make sense. They have rules. And they're things we can learn from and apply if we try. I mean, many things we take for granted now were once utopias. Now, that's our sympathetic reading of Verne as a utopian, a revolutionary, someone who wakes up to become bold. Another reading of Verne Haskell, though, ha requires us to separate our sympathy for his situation and look at what he actually does. He carries on a delusion of every urban planner who thinks that the perfect ideal community can be created simply by building the right things in the right areas. Right. He, he takes no consideration of the economic consequences of maybe destroying all the factories in the town, which might be the livelihood for many people. He doesn't he just resents rich people. So he destroys their homes, not really knowing what their economic function is. I imagine the economy of this town would be quite in shambles. Now, urban planners, I think, tend to have a kind of a totalitarian delusions of grandeur at times. They have these major urban renewal projects. They try to have bigger buildings. Um, they tear down old buildings, some ancient communities. They tear them down and try to build beautiful, wonderful things. And it's all a step towards greater and greater gentrification and divisions in our cities. Right? And urban planners, when they hear things like, you know, like there's an earthquake or a flood or something, their mouth waters because this means they can go in there and, you know, play out all their experiments without having to worry about the old city getting in the way. Verne makes himself the mayor of this little paradise, and he uses the police to enforce his will. And it seems, in the final lines of the story, to exact revenge on his, on his wife. And if we want to have some sympathy for Mrs. Haskell, we probably should. Yeah, Verne is in a horrible poison his life and we sympathize with the situation but he also neglects his wife he doesn't spend time with her he the only thing he really says to her is like your food sucks so he's not in any way a good husband we don't blame her for having an affair I, I don't think yet he still wants to use his newfound powers to exact revenge on them he is the ultimate example of an urban tyranny and he's a hero of any urban planner who's had to deal with community organizations that might have all their pesky 
qualifiers and, and provisos and suggestions about the better way to maybe develop a town, right? right. They say, well, we want bike lanes here or, or we want more low-cost housing. And this just frustrates the plans of the, of the great dreamer, the creator. Vern Haskell has much in common with the world builders, actually an eye in the sky, which is a novel we'll, we'll get to. It's one of his first novels, so it be, won't be too long before we, we finally get to it. But in Eye in the Sky, Dick imagines this world builders. Uh, you know, a series of people basically create the whole world based on their own private delusion. And there's a series of four or five of these delusions that they kind of go through over the course of the novel. Each one, one of the characters, ideal utopia. It deals with the question of creating the perfect world and it describes just how horrific that act is in practice. Dick actually seems to prefer a unity of these two interpretations. He wrote this quote in the story. Vern Haskell initially appears as the prototype of the impotent. Oh, this is actually in his notes for the story. Vern Haskell initially appears as the prototype of the impotent human being, but this conceals a drive of his core self, which is anything but weak. It's as if I'm saying the put upon person may be very dangerous. Be careful of how you misuse him. He may be a mask for Thantos, the antagonist of life. He may not secretly wish to rule. He may wish to destroy, end quote. And it, it's more than that. I, when I read the story, I think of Walter White, actually, the hero of Breaking Bad, the, the lowly, innocuous high school chemistry teacher who, after finding he gets cancer, begins to make meth and he becomes a major player in the underworld and a criminal and a murderer and all kinds of other nasty things. This for him is kind of this assertion of this world of power. It is for Verne too. So you almost have a Nietzschean kind of theme here. And uh, we have another adulterous wife. We could list them all. There'd be a lot if we were to list all the adulterous wives in Dick's fictions. I mean, are there any wives who aren't, if not adulterous, at risk of being adulterers? Um, there's a lot more adulterous wives than there are adulterous husbands, that's for sure. Dick explores several examples of these desperate housewives having affairs with all sorts of oddities in his early stories. He's got a story on withered apples where it's a tree, and then we've already looked at beyond the door where it's a cuckoo clock, and out in the garden where it was a, a duck. The cause, though, of adultery, and then there's human is, don't forget. Human is is... Uh, an alien she has an affair with. The cause of the adultery seems to be the same in all these stories. It's rather hard to say that Dick has it out for women, um, but all of the women in the stories do seem to have affairs, and, but they are suffering also through very banal marriages. So he makes the hero of these stories the men, and we kind of wish he'd make the hero a woman more often, but you know he is, he is, and the stories are what they are. But these men aren't always that heroic. I mean, they're they're the ones destroying their marriage as often as the woman. So, you know, I think there's depending on you, maybe your own values will will come to this and how you think about cheating and adultery and your own histories and and how they may come to play in how you look at these issues. But you know, I end up feeling sympathy sympathy for most of Philip Kiddick's wives um, because their husbands are usually not the most attractive men. So a great story. I, I think it's really one of his best early tales on, on urban planning. It's not his first uh, that do, did this. Um, 
The other story that sort of looked at this theme is, what was it called? Actually, there's two. It's, it's the world she wanted sort of does this, but the commuter too. Actually, the commuter is a very um, similar story in a lot of ways. You could compare the two quite fruitfully. Um, but good, I, I recommend you read it. It's it's one of the stories that was early on anthologized. Um, and so, you know, that's why we have notes by Philip Dick about this story. It's a, it's a doozy worth looking into if you haven't yet. So that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and I will be back shortly with another another Philip K. Dick's short story. Come and possess my tired thoughts once That living dies, that living dies, that living dies. 